0: welcome. This is The Professor and the Hack, episode 26 with uh, me, I'm the Hack, Hugh Remington, and the professor, Professor Peter Van Good G'day, Pete.
1: Good to be with you. Chinese people behaving badly, so we're led to believe. Oh, but don't blame them. Blame their government. They're a communist authoritarian state, and they're the ones that are trying to wheedle their way, apparently, into our political system. That's concerning, I would have thought.
0: It's funny, isn't it? Because we seem to be seeing a uh, fundamental shift in how we are now talking at a senior level about China. Mm. We're all aware how dependent we are on them economically, uh, but that other side of the Chinese coin is starting to be examined a bit more closely.
1: Can I just say, if if it is true that this fellow uh, was, there was an attempt to get him pre-selected for the Liberals in the Victorian seat of Chisholm and then get him into Parliament subsequently and have him, therefore, as a Chinese spy, I mean, these guys need to, you know, watch a few more James Bond movies to get this right. I mean, they were never going to succeed on this one. The seat of Chisholm, it was a miracle as it was that they won the seat, much less uh, with something like this as as part of the pathway. It's a marginal seat anyway. So he'd be coming and going with the electoral tide. My advice, not that I'm, Keen on giving advice to the yeah, Chinese Communist I'm sure Party. Xi Jinping is one of our, <laughs> if one of our dedicated if he's, if he's listening, he's got to lift Russia his game. Russia, if go- you're listening. He's got, they've got to lift their game, Hugh, on this <laughs> because, you know, my advice to them as a political scientist is target a safe seat, not a marginal seat, and put the groundwork in so that you win those marginal seats. China is the most populated nation in the world still. I think it's still ahead of India. There are plenty of Chinese in Australia. They, they just need to stack branches into a safe seat and then get themselves there. Because even if they'd got this bloke into parliament he wouldn't have been able to do much from the back bench. They need to get into a safe seat so that he can have more chance of entering the ministry as well. Then they can really uh, spy their way in into our democracy. Ben, along
0: perhaps, once John Alexander retires from it as a high Chinese population, should be reasonably safe. It's
1: marching. See, you're, you're joining me. We, 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 oh, yeah. should, uh, we should clarify that we we're should, not getting consultancy fees. Well, we Chinese should Chinese shop
0: ourselves boat. out for consultancy <laughs> fees because <laughs> the Chinese pay some pretty bloody good ch- uh, consultancy fees if you're uh, telling them what they want to know. But let's dig a little deeper into this because you actually make a really good point. So the allegation is, is this guy, uh, Nick Jiao, or Bo Jiao, was a, um, a a young, pushy business lad on the make with a car dealership in um, in Melbourne, which was starting to go wrong. Mm. And uh, what he told ASIO, so we're told to believe, and bear in mind, he was the one who went to ASIO, as it is reported, was that he had been approached by a Chinese businessman, waiving a million dollars uh, uh, Nick Zhao was already a, a member of the Liberal Party and the idea was is that he would stand for the seat of Chisholm and therefore uh, thereafter owe this guy Chen uh, for the money. The suggestion seemed to be that seeing that he was in financial difficulties, um, his gratitude uh, could be uh, repaid through then becoming an agent of influence for China in the federal parliament. Bear in mind, at the time that that was taking place, it might have been presumed that the Liberal Party would be in a better position to hold Chisholm.
1: That's true. But even so, though, it's still a marginal seat. I mean, Chisholm is always going to be one of those seats that comes and goes with the electoral tide. And if anything, I would probably argue that it's going to more go rather than come forth from the Liberal side of politics, notwithstanding some demographic shifts. It's more been a a Labor seat than a Liberal seat. But either way, if they really want to have influence in the Australian political system of one form or another, there are better ways to do it, which is to go for the safe seat so that the MP, if they are to be a Chinese spy, can have real influence and real longevity. Or there are easier ways, if you don't want to try to go through that pre-selection process where it's going to take them years of infiltration – staffing roles, bureaucratic roles, where they get the same access to high-level information as well as the influence that that those advisory roles can have. That's the better way to do it. I mean, I do feel now like I'm probably doing the wrong thing, offering free uh, spying advice to the Chinese, but... That is the better way to do but it. Mind yeah.
0: you, I, I'm enjoying this process, <laughs> enjoying seeing the way that your mind works because you're, you're, you're much more savvy than I am in terms of how you actually get into positions of influence in, in politics. But at the same time, I wonder if this wasn't smart. For a million dollars, which to the Chinese is chump change, uh, the prospect of getting someone, for example, if you're going to try to get a Chinese agent of influence into the federal uh, parliament, mm. the safest Liberal Party seats are in the upper north shore of Of Sydney or, you know, I mean, that's really the strongest of them, you know, uh, and and so there's enormous competition, you know, the last time when when Brendan Nelson quit and gave up the seat of Bradfield, there was a Melbourne Cup field of people competing for it. So your prospects of getting someone into one of those super safe seats is pretty small. Whereas you want to put them into a place where the fact that you are Chinese is an electoral advantage within that seat, Chisholm certainly qualifies. Also for Also, puts
1: a spotlight on you, though, as well. I mean, that's the other issue. I mean, we see that with Gladys Liu, whether fairly or unfairly, she's targeted on all sorts of ways because she got Chisholm. Because she got Chisholm in the end, and because of her Chinese heritage or Hong Kong heritage. Now, uh, but the- she left a trail of stuff, uh,
0: whether gormlessly or or from some other motivation because she turned up as uh, as being a representative, a patron, various other office holders, and a whole range of uh, Chinese community-style business organisations mm. linked back to the, the communist authorities. She says she was put onto those lists without, any, without having her own knowledge that she was being... And,
1: and there may be some truth in that. I mean, the yeah. other thing, as you were talking then, Hugh, that I just thought of, even though the staffing route or the bureaucratic route might be the path of least resistance in terms of preselections, electoral uncertainty and so forth. It does mean, however, that you are beholden to ASIO uh, investigations and you are beholden to security clearances, whereas members of parliament, that is a much easier path because even though they still have those done to them and, and there is advice around it, they can't be excluded because of it, uh, because you know that that would thwart the democratic process. Because
0: I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to offer up a counter argument to yours and say, in fact, it was smart. It was a smart move. If you want to get someone inside the parliament, with as you say, the benefit that as an elected representative, you don't have to go through all those security things. You are, after all, the duly chosen uh, representative of the people. It's not for bureaucrats to decide that you mm. shouldn't be there. So um, it was cheap. You get someone who's vulnerable financially, so therefore more likely to be beholden to the sponsors that have put them in there. Once you're inside Parliament, you have uh, two key advantages. The less important of those two is that you get to go into various people's offices and have a chat and try to say, gee, China isn't so bad or on any specific issue, try to swing it one way hopefully even get yourself in a position where um, people might turn to you and say, well, what do you think? How, how's this going to play in the Chinese community? And then you can sort of get inside people's heads that way. So there's that direct kind of persuasive capacity you have as an MP. But the other thing is the listening ears. You get yourself on committees. That's true. You get to see how people go. You might get to see who's susceptible uh, to, to thinking, who is hostile to China and so therefore
1: might be subject to other forms of pressure in their own seats? See, I think the I think the Senate becomes a, a halfway house between some of what I said and some of what you're saying, because in the Senate you get six-year terms, you can tap into the wider Chinese-Australian population in terms of pre-selections to make that easier to get past, as you say, the difficulties of some of those really safe seats. But the Senate is still a lock if you can get the one or two spot, particularly in, in most states, but particularly in, in states like New South Wales. So... Uh, That might be the way to go. And then the committee, of course, the committee systems in the Senate are even more powerful. Harder to get into, though, because to get one of those.
0: Uh, surefire seats in the Senate. Essentially, you've got to be loved or powerful within but the, the party easier. machine.
1: That's true, but the stack is easier. So you might get in initially in the number three spot, and it also provides the party with more diversity. That would be one of the other things. I mean, the Liberal Party is often attacked for not having enough diversity, not just on gender. This would become a way to counter that. For example, there's there's people uh, of different ethnicity uh, in the upper house at state level for a lot of coalition parties uh, for that exact reason, but the lists are longer than they are in the Senate, which goes to your point. So it's uh, it's easier if you like to get in, but you you do have some of those counter arguments. I think the bigger one though is just that you tap into the wider um community from which you can garner support. But but I I just even think that and this fundraising. is... fundraising exactly. I even think that this is amateur hour though for um for a spying agency to try to. Have it where they're holding something over someone. The allegations that this fellow, uh, you know, was was got himself into a bind and therefore would be beholden. Aren't they better off to do it where they actually try to have ideologues who support the concept of the Chinese Communist Party intervening in the Australian democratic process because they're going to be. But they might be harder willing. to get elected if they leave a trail
0: of oh, some there kind. There
1: must be a way through that, surely. I mean, I've, I've seen enough James Bond movies; they they can get get around that, can't they?
0: Yeah, it's funny because having known a few spies in my time in my other former lives, the trick is to find people who are vulnerable, that constant Mm. search for people who can be blackmailed, who've got financial difficulties, who might have a gambling habit, who might have a sexual um, uh, behaviour that makes them subject to being... Blackmailed or pressured, and this is the entire process of those uh, assessments that are made of people, particularly in the United States, for for um, sensitive officers. Mm. Is can they be blackmailed? Can you know you 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 get the ideologue who becomes an agent for a foreign? Power, but you get the others who simply have difficult options and have been pressured into it, and and that becomes the line of least resistance. And it's nasty business, it's isn't a, it? It's a totally nasty business, and it is relentless. and, and Let's put, let's broaden this out because we know, in fact, this guy Nick uh, Jiao died not long after going to ASIO to tell them what he plainly believed was the process of grooming him to try to get him inserted into Parliament. And there's that's investiga- a
1: mysterious death. It's under investigation. Well, that's unbelievable in and of itself. I mean, that really turns this into, you know, we talk about it being a nasty business. I mean, if, if there's any truth at all to the idea that he was murdered because of what had, what he had or done. Or
0: committed suicide under, under enormous duress mm. because he realises that something worse is coming down the turnpike for him. Then these are all subjects of coronial inquiries and so on. And in the meantime, we've got uh, Wong Li Chiang, who's this uh, bloke who's turned up saying that he was a um, uh, an agent for the Chinese in Hong Kong, and uh, and is telling a, a tale for uh, you know for the Nine Newspapers and also for Sixty Minutes about just the scope and uh, determination of the Amer- of, of the Chinese spy operations within Australia. Um, and this sort of stuff combining with Duncan Lewis, the former head of ASIO, yep. probably the least hysterical figure you'll ever meet in your life. Uh, as abs- you know, former head of the SAS, uh, a, a, a general uh, national security advisor, goes on to become the head of our biggest spy agency. This is not a, to use the terrible phrase, a bedwetter. Mm. And when he's out there saying, that there is an insidious process coming from China to try to infiltrate and and uh, and influence our political system, we surely uh, need to
1: be paying that deep attention. Oh, and particularly, and we've talked about this before on this podcast, Hugh, But you know, China being a totalitarian state, um, an emerging superpower, if not already a superpower, prepared to throw its weight around, particularly in its region of which we are a part. Uh, It has a scant regard for international law or, indeed, international norms, uh, human rights violations, a scant regard for the law internally as well, which is something that Australian business people have been caught up in, uh, particularly those of Chinese heritage. This is, I think, a massive, massive issue. And then when you throw in Australia's, which we talked about at the start of this chat, dependence on China economically – uh, that is no excuse for turning a blind eye to any of the things we're talking about. But I tell you what, it makes it awkward when we do decide to call them out depending on what the ramifications or implications But we have no be. option
0: but to call them out. I
1: agree. And, I agree. And,
0: you know, there's one thing about whether they buy our iron or our coal or so on, but they could put a shock through Australia just by simply shutting down visas or I- introducing a new exit visa category for Chinese students wanting to come to Australia. Yep. And they did this, oddly enough. In Macau, you might recall James Packer Absolutely. got himself heavily invested in Macau. It's a gambling cent capital of the world now. Um, and there was all this money coming in. The Chinese realised that uh, the casinos in Macau were being used for money laundering, for organised criminals, hot money coming out of China. And the Chinese government just, on a day, stopped exit visas into Macau, just stopped them. And the entire gambling industry in Macau went into into a cardiac arrest. Now, after a little while, they reopened those uh, sluice gates, if you like, but they'd made their point they could do the same thing to us with uh, Chinese students coming here for an education. And on
1: exactly that, the level of dependence of Australian universities for funding and for their viability and for their international rankings on those full fee-paying Chinese students who come here is huge and it's a hole that can't be filled Mm. if the Chinese were to do that because, for example, the rise of India, I I know this from within the university sector, Indian students coming here are much much more price sensitive than Chinese students and it's a long way off the gap between them being able to fill uh, were China to to pull the plug on on them – and that's that those are all concerns that sit there that, yeah. that, that are no, an issue there's no
0: way anyone else is going to fill the gap of china for it's certainly
1: not for decades yeah. and yeah, indonesia and indonesia uh, indonesia and india one day but not for a very long time and this is a much bigger issue than people realize because the university sector not only is it underfunded if you take out those full fee paying overseas students particularly the chinese but on top of that it actually is our second biggest export market People don't realise that, just how important it is to the economy. It sits right after the resource sector. So uh, that is something that China could actually do with limited impact on themselves. Like we talk a lot about, you know, they could turn the tap off with iron ore and so on. That's harder for them, okay? That, that that has a more profound impact on them and their economy. It would be the easiest thing in the world, as you say, Hugh, for them to just shut down Chinese students coming to Australian universities because they simply go to other universities. You just do it for a year. Yep. And then all of a sudden, the economic impact of that on the Australian economy, much less specifically on the university sector, would be huge. We should remember Chen
0: Yong Ling, who a dozen years ago, uh, was a, he was a Chinese diplomat, and he said that there were 10,000 Chinese agents operating within Australia. People kind of laughed at that. He became a defector. He was granted asylum here. Um, one presumes that might be a, um, a precedent for Wang Li Jiang, who's seeking asylum here now. It's hard to believe Australia would kick him out on his ass after revealing what's going on. But it's not as if we weren't warned. Uh, let's take a quick break, Peter, and we'll be back in just a moment.
1: Looking for your next favourite podcast? Why don't you head over to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat.
0: You're listening to The Professor in the Hack, episode 26. We're uh, into part two. Hey, thanks for staying listening to us, folks. Let's talk about something other than China. Hmm. The government has been, this government has been determined to crack down on unions and a key piece of legislation, the Ensuring Integrity Bill, I think it's called, Hmm. is going through. They're looking for the last bits of votes, desperate scramble for the last votes. Jackie Lambie is key to this in the Senate. Uh, Are they going to get it?
1: Well, it's looking like they're going to get it, but herding cats is easier than hurting crossbenchers in the senate so uh, that that's a debate that they face on a on a daily basis whether it's the medivac laws or or these union integrity laws but i'm more interested in the inconsistency of the union measures that they're trying to put in place versus what does or doesn't apply to corporate australia in the wake of some of what's been revealed around Westpac and presumably will be soon enough around NAB with an OzTrack investigation due to be reported there down the track.
0: Explain the issues here because a lot of people don't get it. Yeah, okay.
1: I mean, look, with Westpac, I mean, most people no doubt would have seen what's going on there with the problems that they've got at the moment with this OzTrack investigation that they have essentially been... What is OzTrack? Okay, well, OzTrack Aust- is monitoring financial... Uh, well, fi- the financing uh, of potential money laundering or untoward activity with transfers, financial transfers from Australians to abroad. And banks make a lot of money out of that because they get a cut each time somebody transfers money. Now, there was there's a system, a swift pay system that most of the banks use, which is quite expensive, but it's very secure. And it provides exactly what Ostrac needs, if you like, to be able to ensure that banks are keeping a close eye on transactions that nothing untoward looks like it's going to terrorists, to drug gangs, or as what Westpac appears to have done, uh, the financing of pedophiles, essentially, uh, child exploitation. Now, Westpac used the Swift product. They decided to switch to what was called LightPay. Now, LightPay doesn't have the protections that the previous Swift product did. It's cheaper, but And by being cheaper, it means much higher profits for Westpac. Now, the executives there are saying, we didn't know what was going on. Don't blame us. That's why they've all been trying to hang on to their jobs. Board saying the same thing. However, the simple fact is they may not have known the specifics, but they had to be aware of the risks because they knew that they were going to a cheaper, less secure product because they wanted profits and they wanted their bonuses and they were putting that first rather than the risk protections. So I don't think it is good enough for them to turn around and say, oh, we didn't know the specifics. No, you didn't. But you knew that you were cutting you knew corners. The inevitability. You were cutting corners, yeah. exactly. And they they almost certainly didn't think uh, about the pedophilia side of things. Um, but, should, but why not? Well, they should have. I mean, I, I don't care personally that they didn't think about that because that's their job. A, a, a single phone call to the eSafety
0: Commissioner, would have educated them about the vast amounts of money that are involved in the global sex trade, of which Australia is both a market, this is child sex trade, of which Australia is both a market and a propagator of that crime. And it needs to have money that is going underneath the radar in order to lubricate,
1: if I may use that terrible verb, that awful business and it is extraordinary because they shut light pay down on the weekend just past you know four days after the scandal broke when OzTrack put in its statement of claim why didn't they shut it down earlier than that they knew about it they even knew about the OzTrack investigation into the problems with it for years and years before that they were alerted to the risks yet they kept it going because they knew that it was profitable and it was bumping up their bottom line, bumping up their bonuses. It is an absolute disgrace that they are now unwilling to take accountability. I tell you what, I tell you what, Harry S. Truman, as US President, used to have a sign on his desk that said the buck stops here. Brian Hartzer, as CEO, has American heritage. He's also a student of US political history. He may be aware of that sign, but he doesn't live by the creed because he's at the top of the food chain in Westpac. Harry S. Truman, the buck stops here. Brian Hartzer, hurl the buck in a million directions. I'm not taking responsibility.
0: Or the other alternative is that he has a sign on his desk that just simply says, the buck, the buck, <laughs> the buck. Nothing matters but the buck. Look, uh, it is outrageous because Oztrack has, uh, as we now know, followed up some of those, um, th- those transactions that took place and specifically tied, uh, plainly, Red flaggable transactions to actual crimes against children in the Philippines to the destruction of lives in the
1: Philippines. They were able to do that, so they are able to show the specifics. And Hugh, this is this is sorry to interrupt, but this is a really important point. the The executive team has to approve the shift to the light pay product, and it gets all the details of the fores and against in its board paper in, in its papers. Now. The against are the higher risks. The fours are that it's cheaper, more money, more profits. The executive approves that. Okay. So it might be one individual who's a manager who suggests it, and then the executive approves it. It might be the risk unit. All the way up to the CEO? Absolutely. He sits on the executive team. So the executive team are all the group executives, the head of which is the CEO. It then has to go to board for approval from the board once the executive team have approved it the only member of the executive team who sits on the board is the CEO. So he then takes it to the board. A lot of people don't realise the process, you see. That's why they perhaps think, oh, this is dodgy, but maybe it's true that there's no accountability to them and some underling did the wrong thing. Well, no doubt some underling perhaps didn't do enough, but ultimately this is all about the executive team, those group executives who approved it, and the board which then approved the executive team's approval. And that is why when it all turns to the proverbial, as it now has, and when it all gets exposed and it's as grubby as it is and it involves child pornography, for heaven's sakes, the people that are responsible are the board and the executive team. And, frankly, I find it so disgusting that they're not willing to have the guts to take ownership of responsibility on this. Who Who gets to decide over them? I mean, is, what, what, what well, is the what What is the... shareholders, the, ultimately, they, Look, they might get, go out on their backsides because institutional investors put enough pressure on. But this is the thing. But if, what about governments? Well, it's hard for government. They can change the rules, but there's a level of retrospectivity that's always difficult in legislation. But
0: rhetorically, they can make life absolutely appalling. And they've been doing place. that. Josh Frydenberg... Do you Frydenberg,
1: think they've been doing enough? Josh, no, I think they can do more. But Josh Frydenberg did it on the weekend on Insiders. Uh, the Prime Minister was pretty pointed in some of his observations. But it, it is a matter for... See, this is the problem with it. It's so circular. The board decides whether or not to fire the CEO. The CEO decides whether or not to fire other group executives. If the CEO fires group executives or general managers whom he thinks are involved, that puts himself in the line of fire. If the board fires the CEO because the board approved light pay, that puts the board in the line of fire. So this is just one big protection racket for themselves. You know, they, they, they don't want the dominoes to start. The minute that somebody goes, the dominoes start.
0: Absolutely, because if you, if you fling out even a lower-level executive... Uh, off we go. ...you can't guarantee, in fact, you pretty much can guarantee, that they're going to race off to put their side of the story and there'll be enough darts flung that uh, they'll all be gone and, and that's why they that, it's like yep. stick together or, and what is it, united we stand and... <laughs> Divided, divided we fall. So, hmm.
1: And the executive are trying to maintain their roles. I mean, sure. They're they they're not going to take a bonus for one year. Crimea River. Yeah. They're on multi-million dollar salaries. And then if they survive it, then they all get their bonuses, probably bigger, the following year or years that follow. The board don't want to take accountability because if you step down, there's implied responsibility and that could harm their ability to be on other boards. Absolutely. You know, I mean, the, the the outrageousness of this. Well, Josh Frydenberg did indicate that they could be
0: subject to a decision uh, by APRA. Uh, yeah, that but that's they- a tough
1: one, Hugh, because APRA, that, that's the the, the bare requirements. They they weren't retrospective and they were brought in in 2018. Now, there is a chance that post-2018 there's been some criminal conduct and therefore they are personally liable criminally uh, if that can be found to be true. The problem, though, with those APRA rules is that they weren't applied retrospectively, and I'm pretty sure from my sources that the banks, as soon as they knew APRA was about to put these bare requirements in and therefore criminal responsibility would rest on individual executives, all of a sudden that was the point at which everybody was cleaning up their act in the banking sector, Uh, and because it's not retrospective, whatever had happened before then continues to be fines only and the corporation only.
0: What a bunch of shonks. And the thing about it is, is that... uh Australians, if my sense of it is right, have a deeper sense of disdain about institutions than they ever have, uh, whether it is unions, obviously, churches, uh, whether it's political parties, political leadership, the business sector. Mm. It used to be there was no one, no one loved the banks, but they're all seem to be doing the right thing, sort of. Uh, all of that has gone, and feeds into a deeper, darker sense of, of, of kind of, anger, which itself feeds into this kind of populist authoritarianism, yeah. which is the political movement that's sweeping the democratic world.
1: Oh, it's a great point. You know, it, it, the the trust deficit is what I'd almost call it, and the respect deficit. Uh, becomes its own self-fulfilling prophecy in the direction of what people also don't like, a lot of people anyway, which is the populism of politics. Uh, and it all stems from, as you say, institutional decay. And it, it, you can't just blame Generation Next for not showing respect. Because well, you, you say the, the elites don't like populist politics for the very obvious reason mm. that it's
0: anti-elite. But uh, in many ways... The people, that's where well, the popular comes it in from, a way, isn't it? Um,
1: <laughs> uh, you know, they're all for it. They're kind of, they're ready for it. And, well, and part of this though, I mean, look, the in, there is all these institutional decay that occurs, but part of it as well is the posturing that has come from business types, banks as well, Westpac in particular in a lot of respects, on issues of morality and ethics uh, or conscience that they will refer to things that some of which I'll agree with. You know, they're at the vanguard of the same-sex marriage debate. They proclaim the need to push diversity. Why don't you do it in politics? We do it in our business practices. It's very hard to take on those sort of causes uh, when you're not even when your own house is burning, when your core business is going is, is rotten. rotten to the core. Absolutely.
0: And then to circle it back to where we started, this does it not appear hypocritical? or a misjudgment of their energies and direction to make the focus of, as they say, the ensuring integrity bill, that the integrity that must be ensured is in the union movement, <laughs> as opposed to the these business, these absolutely revolting business fat cats covering their own massive, massive paychecks while also enabling let's not get away from it the, the, unspeakable exploitation of children. Oh,
1: it's something that...
0: Where's ensuring integrity? Yeah,
1: let's go on and well, ensure and, some integrity. And that's why Labor are going down the path of why is the government so keen to act on the unions but, you know, is talking tough but not actually acting tough when it comes to corporate Australia. Well Let me just echo what you just said at the end there, Hugh, about this. Let's Listeners should never lose sight of the fact that what we're talking about here is... Profits being put first, leading, as a result, leading to child exploitation, pedophilia. It is disgusting. I I don't understand how they can not just sleep at night, but then actually sit there and throw their hands up and say, I know nothing. I knew Mm -hmm. nothing. They chased the dollar, and by doing so, they increased the risks. And by increasing the risks, children have been Abused,
0: and they walk around their eastern suburbs, harbourside communities, shaking hands, nodding and smiling at the churches and at the at the school sports days, and, oh, and, and acting, just like, acting like
1: acting acting like they're sort of pillars of the community. Mm. You know, you're not a pillar of the community if you have unwittingly or not facilitated negligently. Child, se- negli- yeah, exactly. At the very least, it's negligent. Uh, at the worst. It's, it's no less. Yeah. It's just disgusting.
0: And on that savoury note, Peter Van Onselen, um, have a great week. We'll talk again next week. You too. Hey. When you've got a moment, check out some of our 10 Speaks podcasts.
1: Short Black with me, Sandra Sully.
0: Hammered Home with me, Baz Dubois.
1: I'm Matt Burke and you've been listening to 10 Speaks Rugby Podcast.
0: I am The Hack, I'm Hugh Rimmington and with me is the Professor Peter Van Onselen. You're looking splendid You relax, Peter. Have you missed me? Next time you're looking for a podcast, head to your favourite podcast player and search 10 Speaks. And give us a five-star rating review while you're there.